Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. My son and I were walking to Shul, and he asked me about the um, migratory patterns of reindeer. It's really one of his questions. He wanted to know where they go, when, and how, and how they know. And so I told him everything I knew on the subject, and he said, wow, huh, that was like a conference. That's how you know you're growing up in an academic family. (laughs) He said, can we chat about something else? So my goal today is not to do that. I want to sit and think together and share a little bit about what's in my mind and my heart and the questions that really keep me up at night. And I hope that you'll join me in thinking about these in a in a personal way. Um, If I if you have any questions, if something that I say doesn't make sense, if you don't understand, if you can't hear, please feel free to not only jump in, but to make your voice known. Deal? Okay. That's the deal with all my students. What we're going to talk about today is the relationship between law and theology and Jewish mysticism in my own practice and in ways that the power of halakha in terms of thinking about deeds may be marshaled in the contemporary world. But I should start with a little bit about my own self. My decades-long journey as a Jewish seeker is rooted in the practice of martial arts that began in my youth. I didn't grow up in Phoenix. I grew up in California. You'll hear that in just a minute. Um, I always will remember standing on the summit of a mountain in the middle of the Sierra Nevada mountains with a broken brick lying at my feet. It was the end of my black belt test. And that was a totally transformative moment for me. That was the moment that I first understood God. I grew up in a secular household, but I knew that there was something bigger. I felt something coursing through me. I knew that there was something else out there. It was almost a kind of overwhelming experience. I had just been training for six months just for that test. I had been training in martial arts for many, many years before then, and I had the good fortune of being in a dojo in a a school where martial arts was a spiritual journey together with a physical practice. And in those moments, I could feel this kind of sacred energy, as yet unnamed, coursing through me. Felt like I was being breathed. I didn't have a vocabulary for it, but that's the best that I could do. So for many years, I had repeated the same motions, pouring forth my spirit anew through time-worn patterns and exercise. Constant training having led me to this place. As time wore on, however, accessing these feelings and concretizing them in my life outside of the dojo became difficult. I didn't quite know what to do with this, with this feeling, with this energy, with this power, with this moment. And I began to look for a path that would lead to a life in which the spiritual worlds that I had been awakened to came with me into the world of ordinary daily life. 
I've always been driven by a deep-seated desire to serve. Even in my adolescence, my soul was alert to the internal stirrings of the devotional vocation. I thought I was going to be a martial arts teacher for many years. Turns out the uh, exact form of my instruction changed a little bit, but the essence is in many ways still the same. And I was led on a quest for a kind of expansive Jewish practice through worship and through service of the source, capital S, of all being that led me to the worlds of Jewish mysticism. In my return to Judaism, I found a religion of law, a path of life in which theology becomes embodied within the sacred words of communities and individuals. The contours of Jewish life include a great network of traditions, of rituals, of practices, the observance of which is classically understood as obligatory. In the modern world, that's no longer the case. This element of disciplined training, of hardened focus, of constant repetition of deeds spoke to my experience as a martial artist. Prayer came very intuitively to me. I've been doing katas for many years. It's the same thing. Day after day, it doesn't change. One of my martial arts teachers told me, you may do the same form many, many times, but you're never supposed to fight the same fight twice. But it's the same motions. And he told me, your internal enemy is always changing. The distracting thoughts are always different. Turns out that's exactly what the Baal Shem Tov says about prayer. How do you know each and every prayer is different? Because you're distracted by different things each and every time. We have some, thankfully, that recur. <laughs> but many of them are things that we don't have before. Each one is a new journey. Each one is a new struggle. Um, in karate, we were taught that the commitment to process and to practice is in some sense even more important than achieving one's ultimate goal. Attaining a black belt represents a milestone, but not a conclusion. It's indicative of a stage in a never-ending journey that's both physical and interior. But I was also drawn to Judaism and to Jewish mysticism in particular because it's a journey of devotion, of poetry, of yearning. The writings of the great Jewish mystics showed me that there's a new realm of lived experience as well as a spiritual vocabulary and symbolic language with which to describe these longings to stand in the presence of the divine. So this expanse of sacred literature was my gateway to the world of Jewish practice and theology, and it sparked another quest to break open the heart as I had once shattered that brick. Doing so taught me the Hasidic masters, smashes the chains of the ego and draws forth inspiration, illumination from the source of being that fills the infinite vastness of the human spirit. Next question on the page is, so how do we get there? If I woke you up in the middle of the night and I asked you, how do you define halakha? You would say, let me go back to sleep. That's what I would say. I'm constantly getting up with my two-year-old. How would you define halakha? Laws? I think that's a fairly classical definition. A path, as related to the word for walking, right? Halakha, as lalechet, right? Right, to walk, to walk along the path. Good. How else might we define halakha? Technology, a sort of spiritual technology, right? Reb Zalman always used to talk about spiritual technologies and about developing. Um, uh, do, do, does everyone know who Reb Zalman? Yeah, okay, 
so he always used to talk about um, the power of spiritual technologies that needed to be um, backwards compatible. He had a very cute way with words in terms of thinking about the way that new things that we develop need to link up to something from the tradition. It doesn't need to be coterminous with the things from the tradition. It's not exactly the same things. But if it doesn't connect to some sort of a greater structure, then it doesn't have the depth and the richness and maybe the resonance of something that has the power that is linked to the echoes of our tradition. Good, so I like that. Technologies, the path, law, obligation comes together with law, I would think, right? One is obligated to follow the law either because it's meaningful or because it's, it's the law, so you gotta do it, right? It's tradition. Other ways of thinking about halacha. Think a little bit more expansively. Think about, let's say, what role it plays in one's life. Right, Franz Rosenzweig talks about prayer as a communal gesture. Um, and the way that we all together, even if we're doing it slightly differently, are engaged with this path or technology or law or whatever we might define it as, brings us together in a very profound sense. One of the ways that I always challenge my students to think about um, terms is how do you translate them into another language? So halakha, if you translate it into English, oftentimes you just put it in italics and then pretend like you've done the job. <laughs> Um, or you don't put it on italics because it's already an English word. Um, you could think about translating into nomos, right, law in a Greek sense. Um, it's often translated into German as gazettes, as law as well. Do we think that that fully encapsulates halacha? Right. Um, one of my friends many years ago pointed out that um, scholars in academia like to make a big different deal about the distinctions between the Dead Sea community and the ancient rabbinic practices and about how they are similar or the same and about issues of theology and this. And they believed in this kind of resurrection or that kind of resurrection. And then we unearthed one of these scrolls in which it seems that the um, Essene communities who lived in the, Dead Scree the Qumran area had a fundamentally different take on the laws of purity from the rabbis, which means that they couldn't eat together, they couldn't mix in their societies, and they had to essentially live in totally different worlds. Theology is amazing, but what defines community is praxis and their commitments to praxis in a very powerful way. They can include everything from technology to laws to spiritual pathways, to taboos, and all of these other things that come together in our legal literature. Fantastic. Now I'm going to ask you a more difficult question, because that was easy. What's the relationship between law, or halakha, and theology? If I asked you that question 400 years ago, it wouldn't have made sense. How do you understand underpin? I want to push you on that point because I think it's a fantastic one. Forms the, the, the basis, the foundation. Okay. Forms the could you say, uh, could, I, uh, could I say um, um, that the halakha represents and is shaped by the theological values that we hold near and dear? Would that be a fair way of saying it? Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully, right? We hope that those are not in fundamental contradistinction to one another and in fact that they um, sort of like a stained glass refract right, outwards through the, through the lens of deed, what we hold in our hearts. Good, yeah. Oh, well, that's, uh, I just said yes, I 
Okay, yes, that, that echoes, that, that, that resonates with you. Fantastic, wonderful. Are they ever at tension with one another? How would you think so? <laughs> but we just said that they resonate with one another. I see it in what's happening in the laws of pressure. Okay, good. And that speaks to another PBM lecture from last month about how the kosher slaughter yep. facilities are yep. the most cruel and the most neglectful um, in so many ways. Yep. Very, very meaningful. Yeah, well, I, I think we'll actually get to that topic um, today where we talk about the relationship between values and how it should guide our, our critical formulation of halakha with a sense of courage in the contemporary world. So thank you very much for bringing that up. That's really, really wonderful. Um, do we understand them as sort of two different universes? Like there's the, the realm of law where we talk about the values of law, and then there's the realm of theology where we talk about like what happens in terms of like what I believe in a private sense, or do we see them as fundamentally linked with one another? The reason that I ask is that I think in some way we're all Mendelssohn's disciples, right? And Mendelssohn in the late 18th century um, tries to create a, a version of Judaism that's consonant with being a part of a modern nation state and the commitments there too, which means that you may have certain deeds, but there's no commanded theology that undergirds what we do. You might believe this, you might believe that. And there are certain practices that we have, but those can also be changed, even though they have a very um, powerful intellectual um, and spiritual importance. But theology is of a second order priority. A lot of American Judaism has that pretty fundamentally in it. Does that resonate with your experience? That's wonderful, which is to say that you, you, you may have different motivations or you may have different values that are mapped onto that different, that, that particular practice. And you may share that realm of practice, but you and the other human being do that for, for different reasons and get something different from it. Right, and it might affect how we interact with mm -hmm. the entire system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. I think it must absolutely. Good, okay. Um, I want to think together about how do we understand this relationship between obligations, communal or individual on the one hand, devotional practices, and the inner world on the other, which is both personal and communal. This is in part about hermeneutics, how do we read and interpret legal texts, but also a question of constructive formulation. How does this interweaving of halakha and theology inform and transform our praxis in the contemporary world. It's not just enough to think nice thoughts, right? But to go out and effect change based on those theological values. So here's my definition of halakha. The journey to stand in the presence of the one with integrity, courage, and compassion. Once more. The journey to stand in the presence of the one with integrity, courage, and compassion. For me, a neo-Hasidic conception of halakha begins with the affirmation that religious rituals and obligations 
must lead to a life of devotion. This is the purpose of halakha, the ultimate goal of our religious quest to stand in the presence of the divine. The rights, the commitments, the responsibilities, the obligations of halakha shape our journey toward the ultimate goal of devekut, a moment of radical awareness and awakening to the divine. Heschel once said, religion begins with the awareness that something is asked of you. It is this tense, eternal asking in which the soul is caught and in which the human being's answer is elicited." End quote. Right? That's, that's the fundament of religion for Heschel. So our answer to God's enduring and ever-present beckoning comes in the form of sacred deeds, specific actions shaped by the covenant that have the power to bring us into the presence of God. So I understand halakha absolutely as being related to halicha, to walk, a journey, a path, which connotes a sense of dynamism, of constant motion. Um, the Hasidic masters all read the word mitzvah as related to the Aramaic word tzavta. Mitzvah as related to tzavta. Tzavta means, does anyone know? Tzavta? Grandfather. Nope, that's savta. Savva, savta. Connection. Togetherness, right? A tzavet in modern Hebrew is a, uh, a crew. Right, so on LL you'll hear Zevet means the flight crew. Um, uh, tzavta means uh, a, a connection, uh, maybe a, uh, a community. Um, if you understand mitzvah not as in terms of tzivui, to command, but in terms of connection, how does that transform your understanding? Every mitzvah at its core is about connection, about fostering connectivity. To whom? To God, comma, and each other. Martin Buber has a famous essay um, called The Love of God and the Love of the Neighbor, in which he describes um, Hasidism as teaching on one foot the path to God leading through the human heart, and that there is no need to sacrifice one's ethical commitments to other human beings in the face of a mystical, a uh, mystical yearning. There's a sort of straw man vision of mysticism, which is I'm going to go commune with God and hang out, and it's going to be awesome, and I can do whatever I want, and I don't have to care about other human beings. A kind of quietistic renunciation of the world. So for Martin Buber, for Heschel, for the Hasidic masters, the opposite is the case. The connection with God is what fosters your connection with other human beings and makes demands of you such that you go out and transform the world. So far, so good? Questions? Think with me. Transform the Jewish world. I didn't say that. Here's the difference between Hasidism and Neo-Hasidism. And if I'm going to use those two words, I should probably define them. Hasidism grows out of the teachings of Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, the Baal Shem Tov, who dies in 1760, who does not go out to start a movement. He goes out to transform the way, people, the way that people look at their religious lives, at the world, at texts, at themselves. He teaches a, a notion that God may be found everywhere, in every human being, in every deed. There is no place devoid of God's glory. 
God is to be served not with sadness, guilt, and contrition, but with joy, gladness, and excitement. And if you think that's not a revolution, then you can spend time reading the text that I do from the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries from the Jewish mystical tradition, which talk about guilt, contrition, self-flagellation, and all those things that like, they say we don't have in our tradition. The Baal Shem Tov says, you don't have to live in opposition to the world. You transform the world. You uplift the world. The world is illuminated with the divine. Um, Hasidism, which is still alive and well as a potent force that has shaped Jewish modernity in very profound ways, changes during its encounter with modernity. In the early 1800s, the Hasidic masters come up against reform, enlightenment, the rise of the modern nation state, things like that. And the theological creativity that undergirds much of Hasidism transforms. It becomes much more muted. It's still there, but it takes on new forms. Hasidism becomes traditionalist, right? which is to say fighting for tradition, um, which is itself a symptom of modernity, right? Because it's all a response to modernity. What's neo-Hasidism? Is it the same as like progressive Hasidism? Certainly could be. What are you thinking about in terms of pro progressive Hasidism? I think the answer is yes, largely. Has anyone heard the term before? No. no. Oh, okay, good. What's neo? No. No, right. Neoclassicism, right? It could be the recapturing of something old. It can also be like a neologism, right? Something that is totally new. And neo-Hasidism is some of both of that. Yeah. Um, My thoughts were reminding me very much of the Chabad movement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chabad actually has elements of this because Chabad is in to a large degree, unafraid of the modern world. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That yep. was my first thought. Yep. Um, I often ask my students, what's, who's the first neo-Hasidic rabbi? Um, and they always say, oh, Martin Buber, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, the answer's probably not. It's Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav in the 1800s takes a look at the world around him and says, this is not what the Baal Shem Tov had in mind. Now sons are taking over after their fathers just because they are born into that kind of lineage and now it's become a dynastic system and it's about economics. It was already there at the early 1800s and he says, no, Hasidism is about something else and he tries to recreate it. The Kotzker Rebbe in the 19th century tries to do the same thing. There's a line going all the way back of people who try and understand how does this creative impulse at the heart of Hasidism get brought into the contemporary world. Neo-Hasidism, you might say, starts with someone like Hillel Zeitlin, who is almost unknown in America um, because very few of his writings up until, I think, 2013 were translated, 2011. Um, they just appeared here and there. Um, more of his writing was known in Hebrew, but still not all that much. He, was, he died in, uh, in 1943 which tells you how he died. He died in, uh, on a death march from the Warsaw Ghetto to, to Treblinka. Um, <clears throat> he tried to create a new Hasidism um, in the early 20th century. And he said that the Hasidism of the Baal Shem Tov was built on three things. Love of God, love of Torah, and love of Israel. In the modern world, those loves can be maintained. They just need to be expanded. The heart needs to be opened just a bit more. The love of God isn't something that you do in just the synagogue. It's something that you do in all 
elements of your day, in all moments of your life. That's very much in consonance with the Baal Shem Tov. Then he gets more radical. The love of Torah is not just about learning the Talmud and learning the Torah and learning all the vast commentaries. It's all those things, but it's also the most ennobling elements of literature, of music, of philosophy, of the things that the world has to teach us. And so what is the love of Israel? In the modern world, it's the love of humanity. And that's a cornerstone of neo-Hasidism, which is the expansion of the love that one has for one's individual community without sacrificing the special quality of that love toward a kind of universalism facing outward as well. Does that make sense? Not, no, let me just make this one other point, which is that in a lot of Jewish thinking, it's not so clear. There's a powerful strand in our tradition. It goes all the way back to the medieval world, and it really goes back to the Hebrew Bible in certain senses of facing inward as opposed to outward. Depending on whether or not you're reading the book of Isaiah or you're reading the book of Ezekiel, the vision of redemption looks entirely different whether or not it's essentially focused on the Jewish people or whether it's a kind of universal redemption. What the neo-Hasidic thinkers are doing is saying there's an element of our tradition which made sense in the 18th century and it may certainly have made sense in the 12th or 13th century. It doesn't make sense in the modern world to have that kind of parochial vision. There's a revolution there that happened. So to, this is all a footnote to that point, which is, no, it's not just for the Jewish world. There's a bigger story to this kind of activism. There's a bigger story to this kind of halacha. Yeah. There's a very profound gap, and it's a gap on both sides, which is to say that in many synagogues where, let's say, full observance of the classical halakha is taken for granted, it's hard to find talk of theology, of Jewish experience in terms of spirit. And on the other hand, in places where there is spirituality, there's not always commitment to praxis, and then there's a third part of this triangle, which is people who don't know that there's something else there in the tradition. One of the things that neo-Hasidism seeks to do, and this is already true in the writings of Martin Buber, remember what language Martin Buber writes for many years? German. German. Why? Because he spoke German. <laughs> Hillel Zeitlin only writes one article in German in his whole life. The rest was all in Hebrew and Yiddish. <laughs> Hillel Zeitlin, this person I was just thinking about. Um, it's part and parcel of, of uh, Buber's project because he's trying to say to the assimilated German audience that he's writing for, there's something here. 
there's something powerful, there's something transformative, there's something exciting, there's something with, dare I say, existential meaning. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik in America tried to do the same thing. In his Boston community, he would give four-hour sermons on the power of halakha, trying to teach people that these were deep philosophical questions in a slightly different way than what Martin Buber was doing. Part of the project that I'm laying out here is addressed to each one of these audiences. For those who are fully outside of that realm of experience, it's to show them that these patterns of life are not ossified structures that need to be left behind, but may be powerful instruments of change, inner and outer, of engagement, of depth of meaning, of spiritual journeying, of questing. It's a hard sell for two reasons. One, they don't believe when I tell them that that's there. And two, not everyone wants to have something asked of them. To be challenged is not a simple thing. It's a very difficult um, ethos to swallow in the contemporary world, but I don't think that this has changed much over time. So how does one demonstrate that? Heschel um, said on a number of occasions, and he says this in writing as well, that the time for dogmatic theology of proving theological points is over for two reasons. One, we can't stand behind those truth claims. My religion and not your religion doesn't work. That's one of the reasons he was so deeply involved in Vatican II. He didn't want that to be uh, levied at us either. The other is that we live in a world in which God's presence is not proven, but witnessed. Through our living, through the change that we are in the world. Does that make sense? In the past century, um, I could give you five. Twentieth <laughs> century, okay. Five good examples, each in their own way. Zeitlin, who literally says, "I'm creating a new Hasidism," is probably the best. Second example would be Martin Buber, who, instead of living in Warsaw as Zeitlin did, lives in Berlin and is writing for a totally different kind of audience. And instead of drawing on the theological writings, what is he doing? Stories. He's bringing the tales to life. So the theological writings, uh, you know, it's, it's important, but where does the real heart of Hasidism live? We all know. It's in the tales of the Hasidic masters. It's in the way that the, the stories of their deeds illuminate our consciousness. They excite us to a different realm of being. Everything from one-liners to very long stories. Um, things like the anecdote about Reb Moshe Leib Sasover, who goes to see the Magid of Mezrich, the great theologian, not to watch him pray, not to learn Kabbalah, but to watch him tie his shoelaces. Um, I had a moment many years ago when I realized that story, um, what it meant. Um, 
I was at Arthur Green's house, and he noticed that I uh, didn't have my shoelaces tied. And he looks at me for a few minutes, and he says, you really should go tie your shoelaces. Martin Buber's... Yeah, we'll get there in just a second. Uh, Martin Buber is clearly one of these figures. Um, Martin Buber never comes to the world of halakha. Um, he gets into a f really big disagreement with his friends Franz Rosenzweig about the nature of halakha and how Buber feels that God cannot be a lawgiver. Any law is just a translation of what God wants from you. And how do you know what God wants from you? You listen. What's the most mitzvah, important mitzvah in the Torah? Whatever you're doing at that moment. He's a good existentialist. There's a, a Hasidic parable about um, Enoch. Enoch from the book of Genesis. Not necessarily in the top like five most important biblical characters in Sunday school. <laughs> um, but what do we know about Enoch? We know two things. He walks with God and then is no more. That's basically what we know about Enoch. Um, Whole genres of literature are spawned by those two lines. The Enoch literature of ancient antiquity is very important. Um, and then a medieval midrash tries to figure out, like, why is this figure so important? And it says that Enoch was a, what occupation gets you into heaven, evidently? He was a shoemaker. And he stitched together heaven and earth with each and every thread. And the Hasidic masters seize upon that and say, yeah, exactly right. Because no matter what you're doing, it can be transformed into an illuminated encounter with God. Halakha and halicha, the journey, guide one wherever one is going. Martin Buber quotes that all the time. So Martin Buber's there. Um, Heschel, without a doubt, is a part of this story. He translates... Hasidic devotion into a contemporary American theological key. Has anyone read the Sabbath? It's one of the best translations of 19th century Polish Hasidism into English that you can find. It's an extraordinary tour de force that if you footnote it with some assiduousness, you can find all these sources that he's referencing um, in terms of building a palace in time in the way that one enters into the Sabbath as a transformative, illuminated encounter with God, it's all there in Polish Hasidism. But he writes it in the key of biblical theology because that's the way that American theology worked in the 1950s. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Heschel is a part of this story. Um, Zalman Schechter Shalomi is a part of this story. His friend Shlomo Karlbach is a part of this story. Very complicated part of this story. Arthur Green is a part of this story. A lot of men. That's changed. Um, in this next generation of people who were trained by Zalman, by Arthur Green, by others, there's been an outpouring of um, theological creativity um, from all different people, men and women, um, in Israel and in America. How is that manifesting itself other than in writings? 
neoclassicism as a project. Um, <clears throat> the Chavura. Um, Art once described it as a neo-Hasidic shtibel for non-Orthodox Jews. Um, Chavra in the 1960s um, became a sort of epicenter for spiritual creativity that left echoes across American Judaism. Um, Reb Zalman's Jewish renewal is a part of that. Um, the starting of new communities across America, and now in Israel also, um, has been a part of this. I don't know what the next stage is going to be. Um, writing gets us so far. Starting new communities gets us so far. There are bigger stories to be told in the 21st century, methinks. What do you think? In terms of? tell you what I want, what I hope for, what I dream about, is a world in which um, Jewish life has been reinfused with a sense of immediacy in terms of the divine, with a sense of proximity of being before God, a sense of intensity, a sense of devotion, a sense of self-transcendence beyond the confines of the ego comma, without in any way sundering or threatening our ethical commitments to those around us, Jews and non-Jews alike. In the contemporary world, that means without a doubt attention to moral issues that are of moment, environmentalism, issues of um, human trafficking, issues of pollution, issues of the way we live in a world that is saturated with words that are devoid of meaning. Maybe I live in that world more than most, I teach 18-year-olds who are always on their phones. But I think that we've all been impacted by those technologies. That's part of what I hope for. Part of the ways that we can welcome people into thinking about this way of approaching halakha, what I what I describe the mitzvot as is not the commandments in the traditional sense or the obligations or the law. Um, I describe them to my students as the duties of intimacy. The duties of intimacy. Um, we're reading the book of Leviticus now, right? Hard to make sermons out of that material. Hard to make sense out of that material. Um, my father-in-law, Nehemiah Polin, who teaches at Hebrew College and is a, um, a, a well-regarded scholar of, of biblical theology as well as Hasidism, um, describes to his seminary students, he teaches at Hebrew College, um, and he teaches the book of Leviticus, um, to students who are really interested in social change and spiritual activism. And he teaches them Leviticus for an entire year. And so the way that he frames it is, how do we create a sense of sacred space, sacred time, sacred people, and sacred deeds in the modern world? What does this text have to say, right? Sacred space, the temple. Sacred time, the festivals, right? They're there in the book of Leviticus as well. Sacred people, the priests, right? They're all over the place. Sacred deeds, the actions of the sacrifices. All of these things have what to offer us in the contemporary world if we listen. The duties of intimacy. 
How do we step into God's presence? One of the things that you'll find in the sources in front of you is, um, and I think it's best if we don't read them now, but I'm going to send you home with some reading. And my email address is there. You can, uh, uh, you can ask me any questions that you want. You'll find that there's this fundamental embrace of creativity and change in Hasidic approaches to halacha. You might think that's kind of odd, given that we imagine Hasidim as the people with long payas and black cloaks who live in areas and only speak Yiddish and don't talk to anyone outside of their world. But there's this fundament of Hasidism, which is all about newness and creativity. The Baal Shem Tov is recorded as having said, Al Tashli Cheni, the eight zikna, the verse in, um, in the book of Psalms, do not cast me off when I am old as don't cast me into a spirit of oldness. Meaning, let me always seek you anew. Let my service always be youthful, no matter how old I am. Um, the Kotzka Rebbe is famous for having said that in Kotsk they don't have frumkeit, piety, but frischkeit, newness, a sense of excitement, every day approaching things anew. If you combine this with the Hasidic understandings of revelation as an ongoing process in which it began at Sinai and goes into our present day, then these voices are not over. And we too are active agents in the shaping of our tradition in the modern and contemporary world. So here I think there has to be an embrace that goes in both directions. In some ways more stringent than the classical halakha, in some ways much more lenient than the classical halakha, depending on the particular case and depending on the particular issue. In terms of the way that we have read, we have this entire law uh, entire genre of Mishnaic law called damages. Right? It's called Nizikin. Um, if you learn in the Orthodox world to become a rabbi, you spend a lot of time with that. It's got oxen goring other oxen and people whose um, rivers overflow other rivers and things like that. It feels very recondite. No one has written, to my knowledge, a serious study of that and its importance for laws of pollution laws of contemporary environmentalism clearly grow out of that. We said just a minute ago about factory farming, we have this category of tsar bale chaim, of not wanting to give any undue suffering to animals. It meant one thing in the 18th century and in the 21st century needs to mean something completely different and look completely different in the way that we manifest the value behind that halakha. And what about the other side? There are ways in which the classical halakha has been interpreted that need to be fundamentally rethought from the bottom up. I think that we all do. I mean, I, I think that reinterpreting the Torah, like while the rabbis obviously have the time and the resources to devote themselves to like academic study, um, in a way we're all responsible for interpreting Judaism for ourselves and enacting that. I know that in Jewish renewal, that's been happening for decades. Yeah. Decades, halakha. Reb Zalman wrote this book called Integral Halakha, 
um, where he, he structures it according to the four uh, sections of the classical Shulchan Aruch um, and tries to translate into a contemporary key, um, again, going back to his metaphors of computers as he was wont to in the late years of his life, um, how do you drill into the system files of halacha and figure out what it's really driving at? What's that original insight that needs to be brought into the contemporary world regarding Shabbat, regarding prayer, regarding community, regarding ethical relationships, all of these things. Um, it's a fantastic work. It's a very, very important work, and it's a very, very important gesture in that direction. I think that you're both right. And let me say why I mean that. In Hasidism, there is this sense, it's a, a deep, deep, brooding sense within Hasidism, which is that no one can tell you what kind of spiritual work you need to be doing. No one can tell you what God asks from you at that moment. Here, I think Buber is dead on when he's reading Hasidism. He has a very good read. Hasidism believes very strongly that you can't look to a law code what to do in any particular moment. In many moments, what you need to do is coterminous with that in the classical sense. But there are also times where God's will is not coterminous with the halakha as classically interpreted. You might say that as radical, but that's something that goes back way into the halakhic tradition, right? Any lawyers here? By trade? No? Law speaks the language of norms as an Aristotelian notion, right? Law is general categories. And then when there are specific instances, you need judges to figure out how to, to apply it. Here's a great example. Maimonides, great legal scholar, I think we can all agree, writes the Mishneh Torah where he he looks at all of rabbinic law and then arranges it how he thinks it should be, right? Takes an expansive mind to be able to do that. Um, also writes responsa that contradict the Mishneh Torah. So someone gives a law code and a legal ruling that say the opposite. How can that be? Law speaks the language of norms and not to the personal situation. Now, if you amplify that even more and you combine it with this embrace of creativity in the sense of the individual quest, we're all here to do something unique. No one can do it for me. No one has ever done it before me. Then you develop a very personal relationship with the halakha, with reformulating the halakha, with engaging with the halakha, with infusing it with meaning, and figuring out, what does it mean in my life? How do I live according to those principles that I hold dear, to that theology that I hold in my heart? One of the things that we've been bouncing around is this relationship between Agadah and Halakha, between theology and law, which, if I've argued my case, you now see is fundamentally intertwined with one another, such that Every legal decision, every halakha, is a statement of theology about what God wants from me in this particular moment. One of the things that really drives me up the wall, in addition to listening to my three-year-old bang on his plate with his spoon, which my wife tells me is not an issue, but drives me up the wall, is when people say it's a halachic injustice. 
I know with my fundament of my being that this is unjust, but this is what the Torah says, or this is what the halacha says, and therefore I can't do anything about it. That hasn't happened once or twice or three times in our tradition that people that uh, before us people have had the um, audacity and courage to figure out ways of moving beyond those moments of impasse. If I come to a moment where I feel that what the halakha demands of me and what I must do according to my moral barometer are in fundamental opposition, I have one of two choices. Living with that sense of rift is not one of them. One of them is submission. And there are times in my life where that is the answer. And there are also times in my life where saying that the classical halakha, as understood, cannot be maintained, is also the direction to go in. And having the courage to follow through on that is not simple. Leaders, role models, are so key in this journey. Here I come back to my tradition as a martial artist. Um, A sensei is one who has gone before, who has walked the path before you. Rabbi Shlomo Tversky, um, who lived in Colorado for many years, um, used to give the following parable. And he would say, what's the difference between tzaddikim and ordinary people, between righteous individuals and ordinary travelers? He said as follows, tzaddikim, um, regular people, and tzaddikim, um, both live in the same reality. There is a maze between us and God, a labyrinth. And we're all walking the same journey. The tzaddikim are those who tell other people where they found a dead end, who are willing to share of their heart and of their journey with a sense of courage and humility. You're not sharing, I got to the end. You're sharing where you've bumped up against a wall in order that other people don't make the same mistakes but also can join you in that journey. Heschel once said, and he writes this in an essay on Jewish education, that we don't need any more textbooks. I don't think we need a textbook on this subject. We need text people. That's what Heschel said. And I think that's very true, that one of the ways that we can live these ideas, and the way that we can broadcast these ideas is people like Rav Shmuley, who live that truth in a way of trying to embody what it is that they stand for in the world with courage, with conviction, intensity, in that journey to find the one. So again, to return to these three different audiences, to those who assume halakha as a, let's say, a, a, a a standard in their community, there's a deeper way of understanding what we're doing, what we are doing, and why we are doing it, and what it's all about, and how, then, that can be manifest. Sometimes it looks exactly the same, and sometimes it transforms in radical ways, which stand not in discontinuity, but in continuity with the tradition. To those who are without a language, It's a way of opening up patterns of observance. You know, we live in a time where 
we've gotten beyond the stage of just ritual, right? It used to be in the 50s and the 60s, that's just ritual, that's just this. I think we've moved beyond that, and there's been a reclamation of the power of ritual in all different Jewish denominations and in many different religious traditions. How does ritual become powerful? How does ritual become meaningful? How does ritual become transformative? Through the layering of these different conceptual worlds that we bring to it through these convictions and values and spiritual resonances that are conjured up through the power of the deed. For those for whom spiritual seeking is the path and deed is of secondary importance, it's a reminder that who we are in the world and who we are in our heart are meant to be in consonance with one another and that the power of the spirit is manifest through the work of our hands. The Magid of Mezrich, and I'll leave you with this, once asked the question, um, the Talmud says, Mahu rachum afata rachum. Just as God is compassionate, so too should we be compassionate. Ma af in Talmudic discourse means just as, so too, right? He reads ma not as that structure, but I, like in ma nishtana halayla hazeh, how is this night different? Mahu rachum? How is God compassionate? Afata rachum, through the compassion that you show. We are the agents of divine compassion in this world, and it's that that the halacha should seek. It's that that the halacha should speak for. Throw open the gates for discussion. Thoughts, pushback, questions, things that were not clear. What are some of the differences that you see between your generation and your teacher's generation, Aaron Zalman, Shlomo, and all of that? What, what, what do you see? What do you see that's happening that's different, that's newer? There are a couple of things that I would point to. <clears throat> um, one of them, both Zalman and Art Green were uh, early adopters of this technology, which is a kind of post-denominationalism, both in Israel and in America, boundaries that 30 years ago or 20 years ago seemed to be almost invincible have all collapsed. In Israel, this distinction between religious and secular communities has only on very, let's say, uh, extreme fringes of either one retained its same power and in the middle, something else is transpiring. Um, in American Judaism, it's clear to me that in 15 years, um, the denominational markers, if they continue in the same way that they have been going, will have totally different, I would say, um, registers of meaning. Um, both Art and Zalman were a part of, of creating that and in breaking down those boundaries, and that is something that I think has intensified and snowballed um, in the past really 15 years. Um, technology, unavoidably, for good or for bad, unless there is some dramatic change in human civilization, which there certainly could be, will play a role in all of this. I don't know quite what, but it has to be grappled with, um, both in terms of the power that it has to link human beings and in the power to distract us from what we're here to do. Both Reb Zalman 
and Arthur Green. Um, in the 60s and 70s, had a very different relationship to practice than they did in their later years. An artist still alive. Um, um, and part of that had to do with what happens after every revolution, um, whether it's the French Revolution or the Zionist Revolution or any the Russian Revolution, there tends to be a backlash um, and then a synthesis um, that the movement toward a kind of radicalism then leads back towards somewhere which is more toward the median, but which carries the vital energy, hopefully, of that radical change and propels it into the future. That's the stage that I see us living in. Um, if you know integral halacha, you know there's this passage that Reb Zalman, um, he originally gave this as a talk in the early 2000s, and he said um, that he felt bad that so many of his students had dealt flagrantly in matters of halacha, and he felt that he wanted them to take it more seriously. Now, he himself had a very important role in shaping the way that they related to it, but in his older years, he was seeing that there was a power in ritual and a power in the cohesion that it brings to a community without sacrificing the importance of my individual ability to make these decisions that was very important to him. There's this sort of you know, move this way out of the world that he came from, which is the world of Chabad in his early years, and then out and then back, which I think is where we're living. And now it's the post-denominational universe that comes forth from that. Um, we also, and we have challenges that they, I think, um, that will look different in 50 years. Again, the issues of environmentalism, which they're both very aware of and active for, um, will become only more increasingly acute in the next generations. And I think one of the great moral failures of, um, of our society is the inability to be able to, to address those head on. In what is the concept for the Rebbe? Oh, it's such a great question. One of the essays in one of these volumes that I'm editing together with Art um, um, had the following title. Does a new Hasidism need Rebbe's question mark. Um, one of Reb Zalman's beautiful and great talents was that he ha could play with words in a way that was very felicitous. He described Rebbeing as a verb. A Rebbe is not a human being. A Rebbe is a role. And sometimes I'm the Rebbe, sometimes you're the Rebbe, and we're all the Rebbe for each other. And he had this thing that he would do um, where he would sit at the tish, at the table, and um, with this strimal and his bekesher, um, with the full garb, and he would say these beautiful words of Torah, and then he would um, get up and everyone would move one, one seat down, and there would be a new Rebbe. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that worked to greater and lesser degrees. <laughs> um, Were you there? Uh, I was around. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yep. So that casts light on the way that he saw the Rebbe as a very fluid um, role, which is something that we're all striving to become in relation with, the, with each other, which is to say that you need teachers. But in terms of perfect human beings that exist on a different plane, I'm not sure that that translates well into the modern world. And it turns out, if you read early Hasidic sources quite well, um, 
the, the role of the tzaddik is a dynamic spiritual individual who is always moving. That's how they are defined, not as a static, perfect human being, um, but there are tzaddikim that exist on all different levels, and you can move up and you can move down, and we're all on this journey together. Um, the tzaddik, as it evolves in Hasidism, really emerges toward the late 18th, early 19th century as this dynastic system emerges from it. And there are wonderful, stable things that come with that dynastic system, and there are also great spiritual tragedies that come with that kind of system. The minute you have a leader that is elected leader just because they are the son of the previous leader does not necessarily make for inspirational communities, right? Um, Oh, in Chabad? Yeah. yeah, in Chabad it was different. Um, yeah. Chabad, it was always a Schneerson. Um, but if you are a Rebbe with daughters, you have to find another way. So you find a relative who can marry one of those daughters and then become... Um, he, he, was a, he was a relative, not a distant relative. I mean, yes, a distant relative, but not all that distant, such that he shared the same last name with his father-in-law before they got married. Um, but Chabad is a slightly different case for a lot of different reasons. One of them is that Chabad has survived actually without a leader. For <clears throat> Chabad has survived without a leader for now um, 24 years, yeah. right? And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but the critical momentum that they have has kept going in a way that many people did not predict especially based on the messianism of the, of the early 90s. They thought it would collapse. And that's very, very interesting. Um, only one other Hasidic group has ever endured for any length of time without a leader. Breslov, right? Breslov, um, Nachman of Breslov dies in, um, in 1810, um, and they don't have another leader. They have a, other spiritual figures, but there's no other leader because um, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was in many ways irreplaceable, and his book, is seen as the sort of charismatic embodiment of his presence. Um, I feel very strongly about this, that on the one hand, this notion of perfect, infallible leaders doesn't translate into the contemporary world, nor should it. On the other hand, the notion of giving up on leaders and on teachers as those who can both guide us and indeed at times make demands of us is something that the martial artist, the academic, who has also come through that city of master, that system of master and disciple, um, uh, in me really doesn't agree with. There is power in those kind of spiritual discipleships. There is power in those kind of spiritual roles. But they look different, and they should look different. And we live in a world where we are all too aware of the way that that power can be misused in ways that are profoundly hurtful. In your opinion, how do you think the Rebbe fits in with the whole picture of the future of Judaism, considering his power? The Lubavitcher Rebbe? Yeah. He was a radical thinker. What in, the Where does the Lubavitcher Rebbe fit into the future of Judaism? I guess that was it on one foot. Um, <clears throat> he fascinates me. Yeah, he, he was a fascinating character. He was a fascinating person. He was a fascinating thinker. He did what no one thought Chabad could do, which was to translate itself into the modern world. Um, when the 
his father-in-law comes to America and gets off the boat, his first words are literally, America is no different. America is nisht andrish. It's no different. Um, we can conquer here, then we can conquer just as we were in Russia. But they were very much an old world community in Russia. The Rebbe brought it into the modern world by embracing technology, embracing elements of modernity. He, he had his very strong conservative side, right? He held out onto things like um, literal understandings of creation, for example. Um, and yet, on the other hand, there was a kind of uh, intellectual fearlessness. Um, he universalized Chabad in a very profound way that required a reconstitution of Chabad sociology and a reconstitution of Chabad theology, and he did it entirely within traditional categories. That takes a bold human being. And his presence is huge. His presence is huge in America. His presence is huge in Israel. There's something very powerful to be learned from that. Synagogues are oftentimes categorized by the halakha and, and the level of their interpretation mm -hmm. and adherence and how the community um, lives according to them. We don't really talk about breathing the mitzvot and having them be in our everyday actions. The synagogue really um, creates a um, spine that it's Friday services, mm -hmm. Friday services, bar and bat mitzvah, and then hopefully you, say, you stick around and start saying do. <laughs> right. So, um, and, and with that also comes a level of exclusion yeah. and hinders um, inclusion, which um, does hurt our fellow Jews sometimes. And so how, like, do, do you see um, like the purpose or the structure of the synagogue changing? Yeah, I mean, it seems like... Or, or neo-Hasidism, how, how do they yeah. see like, the synagogue structure? with it as like a power dynamic? Hasidism and neo-Hasidism, I think, are of a cloth in this particular question. Um, a Hasidic prayer house, a shtibel, is a place where I don't think anyone pays dues. <laughs> it's just a place where you go and you daven, um, and it's about as informal as you can get. The outsourcing to the synagogue and the level of exclusion that one has in many American synagogues is just not present at least in the ideal form of what that shtibel would be held up to be. It should be a place where anyone is welcome, a place where um, the, <clears throat> the depth of engagement with prayer is something that you link up to when you come there and you are excited by, but it's not one that is defined by um, a sense of these are the principles that you have to live by in order to be a member of our particular community. Um, it's one that's devotionally oriented toward who are the people that are standing with me in this quest. They may look different today and tomorrow, and we may have many shared assumptions, and we may have fundamental things that we disagree about. But we can pray together, and we can walk that path together. Um, the synagogue has become not only a place of exclusion, but also a place that we export our Judaism to. Right? It's a place where we do Jewish things. The home has to be a very important part of that. The street has to be a part of that. Who we are, wherever we are. But I think that the, um, the advent of places of learning and of engagement 
where we all speak the common language of texts, of tradition, of engagement. That's an alternative to a vision in which denominational structures, however they're defined, um, tell us what kind of Jew we are. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. But then I also challenge you that that isn't, um, America especially has intermarriage. And so with that brings a sense of exclusion and children, you know, going to Israel, mm-hmm. you know, you go to the, mm-hmm. is your mother Jewish? And that's being used as like a defining metric of your Judaism. Mm-hmm. That in itself, um, I, I don't know if it will ever go away. And the synagogue really um, is like a physical thing that embodies that in Jewish, Jewish spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting that kind of having that tug and pull. Here's where I think Zeitlin's definition of Israel is so interesting and so important. Um, Zeitlin says that the love of Israel is the love of humanity and that Israel is defined not by ethnic lines, has that part of our identity, but it's those who struggle with God. Yisrael, right? That's the biblical origin of the name. And an expansive vision of inclusivity is, I would say, a cornerstone of neo-Hasidism, whether that is issues of intermarriage, whether that is issues of gender identity that don't fit into the binaries of halakha or sexuality or whatever it is that is often weighed as a kind of exclusionary principle in so much of our lives. Um, Neo-Hasidism from its very inception has been moving toward a kind of um, vision in which the polarities of exclusion don't become ways of defining ourselves vis-a-vis other human beings or other Jews, but it is a um, an attempt to link hands and instead of training our vision on others and their deficiencies or their unlikeness of ourselves, training our eyes back on God. Um, the the Ma'or Vashemesh, who is a great 19th century neo-Hasidic master who lives in Krakow, um, offers the following homily on the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. He says that in the time of the tree of life, we saw the world one way. In the time of the tree of knowledge, we see the world in a different way. In the time of the tree of knowledge, we define ourselves by other people. I'm not that. And we look to the deficiencies of other human beings to push ourselves up. I always thought when I read that passage, yeah, that's not me. And then I realized one day I, in shul, I was looking around at other people who weren't davening with concentration. And then I realized I was looking around because I was totally not concentrating. And I was trying to put that on other human beings. And I realized that that's what we all do. We see ourselves in terms of definitions of other human beings. Um, what the Mor says is that in the time to come, and we look toward this even in the present, anticipating it, that the tree of life is seeing everyone for the fullness of God's vision, through the fullness of them being a divine being in this world. And that when we link hands with one another and walk toward that goal, we no longer define ourselves in terms of tov ve'ra, good and bad, this and that, and these binary categories that create more problems than they solve.
Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for walking with me for this hour. I know this is not simple material. If you have any questions, my email is at the bottom. Please do be in touch. I would challenge you to make the following thought as you leave. Think about something that you don't have any meaning attached to that you do and find new meaning in it. And think about something that you don't do that might be a window for transformation and consider what that might give you. If I might ask that of you, you can ask that of me. You can email me to find out what I chose. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.